Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to your one-stop shop for horror news, true crime, and real-life tales of the unexplained, Monsters at Midnight, The Revenge. Episodes of Monsters upload on a bi-weekly format every other Saturday. I'm your host, your favorite escaped madman loose on the airwaves, terrorizing your eardrums, Matt Schaefer. Today I sit down with a good friend and living dead member of the Zima Podcasting Cemetery, Mac Schaefer, aka Machiavelli. We talk about the horror hosts that inspired Mac's show and kick it old school with some discussions on horror literature and Stephen King adaptations. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn out the lights. Monsters at Midnight, the motherfucking revenge, rides again. Alright, as mentioned at the top, I am joined here by a very good friend of mine who you may remember back from the Zima podcasting days. He now has his own Midnight Horror YouTube channel called Machiavelli, and his name is Mac Schaefer, in the words of the Agent Johnsons from Die Hard, No Relation. Mac, <laughs> how are you tonight, dude? I'm doing pretty good. It's all quiet on, on the Milwaukee front. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. Well, very happy we finally got you on the show here. I know we started talking about this back in, like, December but life got <laughs> crazy for a while there. But it, it always does. It always does. Finally, happy to finally have you here because you are planning a return to the Machiavelli channel, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, it's it's been a little it's been a little weird lately. Um, mostly because um, you know, like you said, life got in the way. Um, I put out an episode, it was a Valentine's Day special, mm -hmm. and even though I had done, I had gone through all the, the, the proper channels and did everything correctly, uh, the video got taken down for a copyright over uh, someone who claimed they owned Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster, oh, which is a published sure. domain. So, I'm currently kind of looking in to see if I can figure out how to make sure that doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part, um, that's what archive.org is for. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. So for those at home that aren't aware of your a little uh, uh, like horror host show here, could you give us a run-through and explain sort of what uh, one could expect from the Machiavelli show? Yeah, so... Um... It's called Machiavelli's Monster Movie Madness, um, and I am the host, Machiavelli, the High Wizard of Camp, and the Sorcerer of Schlock. Love it. Um, essentially, I put on, or I, I show movies, uh, mostly ones that are in the public domain, and uh, um, I do a little banter in between, and I try to keep it a little... There, there to be a little more raunchiness to it, a little kind of more of a jokey, uh, more modern banter. Sure, which, yeah. Because as much as I love the old school stuff, there's a point when it gets a little too cheesy. And no, I kinda absolutely. Wanted to, I kind of wanted to take it just, just like a, uh, a hair more serious. Mm-hmm. Because I remember your uh, Bride of the Monster uh, episode before it was taken down. Um, 
And I do remember that you were definitely a little bit more cheeky than some of the other horror movie hosts, midnight uh, horror movie hosts that I've seen in the past. Yeah, yeah, that was that that was that was what I was going for. Mm-hmm. And was there uh, an active decision to do that? Was it like basically was was there any sort of through line or inspiration of like horror movie hosts that? You saw stuff and were like, that's great. I would maybe want to emulate that or stuff that didn't work in your mind that you would want to change. Where did this all start coming from? Well, um, I grew up watching um, late night TV and in uh, northeast, in the northern part of Wisconsin, um, in the 80s, they had uh, Ned the Dead Chiller Theater. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was watching it, it would be reruns and uh, very, it's very, very low budget, made for a shoestring budget, and um, that's how I got introduced to stuff with Vincent Price and uh, um, some of the Roger Corman classics. Very cool. And yeah, and then as um, and around that same time, my dad was getting me into Elvira because he he loved Elvira. Uh, he of loves Elvira, and he loves um, uh, he also loves some of those campy movies that he that he grew up with. So, um, so I, I loved that stuff. Um, I was actually very fond of um, Elvira's Haunted Hills, which is a really fun little. Uh, movie if anyone ever gets a chance to see it i still need to see that one i finally saw elvira mistress of the dark not too long ago but i still need to see haunted hills i think haunted hills is a little bit better because it it kind of leans into um all the corman classics that she's hosted in the past um oh, cool. also i would highly recommend her autobiography it is yeah i own a off. copy of it i need to get around to reading it I have a signed edition. I'm really proud of it. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, um, of course, I mean, you know, because I'm in this area of town, um, just just to the south in Chicago, you got Svengoolie, whom mm-hmm. I unfortunately didn't really get into until just a few years ago when COVID was hitting. Um, so the idea came about, um, it came about at a Renaissance fair. Okay. Um, because I had um, blown a exuberant amount of money on a costume, and I looked so cool in it, and I thought, oh, I kind of look like a Venetian merchant. It, it, it is a I great am... costume. It, it's fucking killer. Yeah, and so I started kind of wandering around and going, Hello, it is I. I am Machiavelli. Mamma mia. <laughs> Papa pizza. That kind of shit. <laughs> and... Um, and then I kind of, that kind of stuck with it. And um, what I noticed was there was a lot of, in a lot of those horror movie hosts, there was never like, they would always be like, you know, spooky and um, like undead, vampires, that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. never really anything that kind of, none of them that dabbled in the occult or kind of had that wizard magic kind of stuff attached mm-hmm. to it. And naturally, because I am, I'm the kind of um, person where um, I surround myself with um, content that kind of mirrors what I'm what I'm doing on camera. 
Sure. I have like a whole bunch of, you know, candles and um, a crystal ball and incense and all sorts of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the idea came um, around last year. I think it was around September when I thought, how fun would it be if I could like host my own? Um, and the one that the film that I picked was. Um, getting off topic just a little bit no that's when totally i was fine. um when i was a teenager um one of my favorite things to do was to go up to oshkosh to the time cinema and they would have a like every other friday it was called friday fright night nice and they would they would just, they would screen these these really really bad fun b movies um and i had so much fun with them and then i had just like then i went to college i kind of forgot all about that and it wasn't until um a couple of years a couple of years ago when i was like oh yeah i forgot how much fun these were in particular one called teenagers from outer space oh hell yeah absolutely um mostly because of like the scene where it's like a a laser gun that just turns you into a skeleton and it's clearly a fake skeleton that they just throw at the camera right yeah <laughs> just, and like what i loved about those movies and especially like even like some of the more more modern kind of campy uh b movies is that yeah they're not great but you can tell that they're having so much fun making that is to always me, it's so important to me too is when you can see the like the ambition or at least the the fun that's being had behind the camera that makes a world of difference to me yes absolutely and especially even with like slasher films like you can tell like you know it's over the top it's dumb they know it's dumb it's not like like when i was like when i was younger it was um my mom and dad were kind of didn't like the fact that i was watching really scary stuff and I was always like, don't you don't you see that like they're they're having fun with this? It's exactly. not like they're they're not trying to make stuff to make yet to um Oh yeah. They're not trying to make Casablanca, you know. I know. That reminds me of actually uh I this was fairly recently too, but my mom at one point told me that she caught part of Evil Dead Two on HBO. And she was like, it was just like absurd. It wasn't scary at all. I was like, that's not the point of Evil Dead 2, Mom. It's supposed to be fun. It's it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be ridiculous. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I had that same issue thing with my mom uh, because we ended up she ended up putting on John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh sure. And, and I mean that's not really a, a fun move. It's fun, but it's yeah. not like. But you can again. It was like. When she saw the, the the chest scene, she was like, "Oh, she was howling like, oh, that's so wicked!" I'm like, "Yeah, ma." Yeah, no, that's. <laughs> I think John Carpenter's the thing might put my mom in the hospital. I don't think she could handle it. Well, I think my mom has seen uh, the Gold Bloom fly though, but she has always prefaced it by that's ah, a gross movie. It's a disgusting movie. Yeah, my mom mentioned she saw she saw that one in the theater with, oh, with a my date, God. I think. Uh, but yeah, and then like when I was growing up, there was always like it was it was always I would look for the movies they said don't watch this. Movie. You're mm-hmm. not you're not gonna watch this. Don't watch Silence of the Lambs. 
watch Silence of the Lambs. Don't watch the Friday the 13th movies. I watched them all during a marathon one night. There you go. That kind of thing. So, um, so getting back to uh, the whole, like, what inspired me about the whole uh, character sure. was also um, around uh, the pandemic. I started getting really into uh, Joe Bob Briggs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, again, what I was amazed by was how um, he would show these movies that, by all accounts, do not seem like really good movies, but when he explains, like, the backstory behind it, what was going on, um, in particular, um, he did one on Werner Herzog. He did a, It was a double feature of the F.W. Murnau Nosferatu and then the Werner Herzog Nosferatu. From oh, the cool. Yeah, yeah. And he did this great breakdown about, like, Nosferatu being, like, the embodiment of the Weimar Republic in German culture, and mm-hmm. Nosferatu Phantom der Nacht being sort of a um, part of that, as what, what is called in Germany the Lost Generation, being the generation of Germans who grew up post-World War II. Sure, yeah. And it was just fascinating to hear that and to kind of get that uh, that take from him. Um, and then that just sent me down a rabbit hole when I was reading up. I was watching, like, some of the old Monster Vision episodes. Um, oh, which, yeah. If you, if you know where to look, they're, they're pretty great. That was TNT, right? That was TNT. That was the, like, mid, early to mid-90s. Yeah, yeah. See, it's so funny. It's I. Uh, I mean, I've seen some of Joe Bob Briggs stuff, but like Joe Bob Briggs and uh, uh, TNT Monster Vision always makes me think of James Rolfe and the Angry Video Game Nerd because yep, he posts and... he posts so much about that on Cinemassacre. Mm-hmm. I'm but... definitely there with you. That's where I kind of heard about stuff. Yeah, that's very cool. Um... That's very cool. And uh, so you said that. You, if I remember correctly, you said that you hosted something like this live before you decided to turn it into a show? Sort of. Um, so every, like, Halloween, because I, I've, I've, um, I've always loved Halloween, but in the last, like, five years, I've started to take it a lot more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly when I was, like, living in my college, in my college apartment, and I was able to, like, oh, yeah, I can actually go all out now, and I can actually decorate my house, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and for a few years, I would do these little live streams um, on my Instagram page. Mm-hmm. And it was one hand, it was kind of me just kind of, I would do readings, I would read some Edgar Allan Poe, I would read from some books on werewolf folklore or uh dracula that kind of stuff very cool yeah and i've surpri- seen a few of these and a surprising amount of people were coming out of the woodwork saying mac we love this this is a lot of fun you should keep doing this and then um i also do one around christmas time that is very popular <laughs> oh yeah and it's, it's it's never what i expect i just sit by my tv which has like one of those uh 12 hour fire uh, fireplace. Oh yeah, playing. absolutely. And people are like, it's so calming and satisfying. I love it. And I'm like, nice. okay, cool. So, 
it started from me doing readings and then i would start like playing records on my lp player um because i have i have a collection of uh very weird records that include everything from like you know spike jones the uh comic singer from the 50s and 60s oh yeah 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 i have like one of his old uh monster goofy monster albums oh cool all the way up to uh like some of the some recordings of alistair crowley doing uh black magic rituals from 1912 that's super cool yeah it's glow in the dark too it's really cool awesome and and one that's I feel a little weird having now, no now that I know more about it, but it's uh um it's called Exorcism Woman by Name is Satan. Okay. And it's and it's a collection of field recordings done from like Baptist revivals in the sixties of so called exorcisms happening. Oh, holy shit, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. And you know, after a while you realize, oh, these aren't they're not possessed. These are just people with mental illnesses, and they're being thrown at the being thrown at religion as a way to save them. And it's, right. It feels a little weird, but it's cool to have it. So, oh yeah, no, most definitely. That is super no. wild. So it was yeah. glow in the dark. That means it must have been like a recent release or a re-release, right? Yeah, it was. Um, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but. Um, it was released as like the Black Magic tapes. Oh, okay, and, um, sure. Regarding the Crowley one, he had recorded these onto wax cylinders in the like nineteen nineteen twelve. Oh wow! And, and those wax cylinders survived, and because you know it's been over a hundred years, it's in the public domain. Um, but they're wild because like not only does he have like these rituals, he also then just goes on these random stream of conscious rants about everything that was going on in the world around that time. E even the Titanic comes up. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah, so... Um, sorry, where were we? <laughs> no, this is great. I mean, this is this is why it's why we do podcasts. <laughs> hell yeah, hell yeah. Um, so, despite... I mean, uh, if we're, like, barring any uh, further... Uh, hindrances, giving copyright claims or whatever else, when can we res uh, expect this uh, return of Machiavelli? Um, so, at the moment, all of the footage is with my editor. Okay. Um, so, if, you, if you've watched the show, um, I have a co-host, and the co-host is uh, a friend of mine named Chi-Chi. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole... There's a, there's a really dumb uh, backstory over how Chi Chi came about um, mm -hmm. involving the uh, 2020 Robert Downey Jr. Doolittle movie. Because <laughs> there's a there's a uh, there's a gorilla in the movie called Chi Chi, and he's voiced by he's voiced by Rami Malek. <coughs> oh my god! <laughs> and there's a, it, it, it gets pretty crazy, but um, my my good friend Thomas plays Chi-Chi, and he's also the editor. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. I didn't know and Thomas edited for you, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and essentially, I will, um, I have a friend come over, and we film a bunch of stuff, um, we leave a little bit of, uh, wiggle room for, for Thomas, 
mm-hmm. so he can add in Chi Chi stuff. And I basically give him full reign to do whatever he wants. Um, <laughs> awesome. And that's and that's led to some um, very bizarre stuff that's happened. Um, for a Christmas special last year, um, we had him. I had like a Christmas present that I sent to him and had him open it uh, on air. Mm-hmm. And it was a copy of the uh, movie Suburban Sasquatch. <laughs> if you know anything about that one? It's a, uh, it's a hoot. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> That's so, awesome. So yeah, um, I'm thinking it's going to be um, early. It'll be early this month, and we're, we're filming this in August, so um, it'll be out definitely by mid-August. Um, the idea is it's it's uh, Machiavelli's like Midsummer Madness. So oh, perfect, love it. So Wonderful. yeah, that's kind of that's kind Very of what we're exciting. going through. Yeah. Well, at the end of this episode, y'all can check out the description for this. I will put a link to uh, Machiavelli's channel. I encourage you to give it a watch. Um, going on to our next topic here, though. For those of you that remember back from the Zima podcasting days, uh, Mac hosts the the show, co-hosted the show with Selena Allen, Time to Adapt, where they would discuss uh, novels and subsequent film adaptations and where they went right, where they went wrong, and everything in between and everything that went into uh, adapting written work uh into something visual. Uh, so I thought a fun topic of discussion would be, well, first a broad topic. Do you read a lot of horror? As of lately, yes. Um, okay. Lately, I've been reading um, a whole slew of... Um, I found out about a couple uh, local... Or stories that are that are t- that take place in in Wisconsin. Nice. Um, but as of lately, um, there's this book called Dead Eleven. Okay. And uh, so far, it's from it was written by a, um, a teacher in Chicago, I think, um, Jimmy Giuliano. Okay. Um, and it takes place um, on a remote island off the coast of Door County. Oh, wow. And um, everyone, as I understand it, there's like an obsession with the year 1994. So it's very nostalgic. And um, uh, so far, it's been pretty interesting. It's a bit of a slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been reading, have you read anything by Nick Cutter? No, I have not, but the name rings familiar. Um, well, so I work at a Barnes & Noble, and one of our featured books was by uh, Nick Cutter, but it's it was under his... Nick Cutter is his pen name. His real name is Craig Davidson. Sure. And that one was called The Saturday Night Ghost Club. And it's not, okay. really, a, not really a horror story, but there are, like, spooky elements to it, and it's a lot of fun. Sure. Um... But his stuff under the name Nick Cutter, Nick Cutter is very intense. His best-known book is called The Troop, mm-hmm. um, which I can best describe as uh, Lord of the Flies meets Cabin Fever. 
Oh, cool. That, that yeah. sounds really cool. Um, aside from that, um, you know, Tender is the Flesh. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, uh, actually, Selena and I are in the midst of, uh, we have a little mini book club going on. And, oh, uh, very nice. We're, uh, we're reading that right now together. Oh, that's um, awesome. And uh, the last one I guess I could talk about is from Christopher Buhlman, Buhlman and it is called, called Between Two Fires. Okay. Uh, that one is about, it's like an alternate history of medieval Europe where this great evil attacked Europe and just never stopped. And there's like no god in this world. Um, so there, it, it's very much like Berserk, if you know that anime. Oh, yeah. Okay, it's kind of sure. like, it's basically like Berserk in medieval France. It is. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, there there are some there are intense moments. There are some like Hellraiser esque stuff going on. Uh, it's it's pretty wild, um, but it's I'm enjoying it immensely. Very cool. I recently started reading. Finally, finally started reading uh, the Living Dead, which is was uh, a book that was started by George A. Romero before he passed away. And then I believe, like, uh, amalgamated and finished by Daniel Krauss. And it is this giant tome of, like, a zombie epic, uh, as would have been in the style of George A. Romero. And it's very well written and also very descriptive in the... Uh, the book starts uh, with these two morticians as they sort of... Uh, encounter one of the first uh, instances of the dead coming back to life. Mm. Um, so there's almost like a very scientific scientific myth, uh, methodology to the writing. So I was wondering uh, for you personally, what are what is something that you find effective in horror writing because fear is a subjective thing and it's also different reading something versus seeing it portrayed visually so what are some things that you find effective in horror writing um i would say probably the unknown mm -hmm. because when you're you know when you're looking at a film it's easy to like you could picture you could you don't need to picture it in your head it's right in front of you mm -hmm. but with books um and especially with stuff like cosmic horror it's all in your head and it's all about it's all about how you com comprehend whatever it is that you read on the page mm -hmm. what you what, what you can imagine like here's some um if you had never seen like stephen king's it sure your idea of what Pennywise the Dancing Clown looked like can be very different than what Andy Muschietti planned or what, uh, or even, you know, Tim Curry or mm -hmm. uh, anything like that. Um, and that's why, um, like, especially H.P. Lovecraft stuff, I think is very well done, um, where it paints... There's, like, a huge... There's a huge, like, mythos and arc that you could... You could follow if you wanted. You could do all that research, but if you're just reading the books that he wrote, you don't. You only get little like tidbits. 
Mm -hmm. And those tidbits are pretty scary. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, I I best recommend, like, At the Mountains of Madness. That one was the... Okay. Yeah, That's the one that I kind of think about when I think of, uh, um, like, how images are painted on, on in a book. It is such a powerful thing that the written word has because you're essentially... I mean, it's the age-old uh, saying that your mind's eye can conjure up things infinitely more frightening. It's, like you said, the fear of the unknown. It's, uh, it's That's uh, some of the power that uh, horror writing holds, is the fact that you're essentially painting the picture and coming to the conclusions yourself and formulating what could be and reading between the lines and things like that. We stopped looking under the bed when we realized the monsters were inside all of us. <laughs> exactly. The monsters were the friends we made along we the way. Along the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, you brought up Stephen King, which is a great uh, transition into this sort of more narrow topic, going back to sort of the time to adapt days. Obviously, Stephen King has had numerous countless millions of books adapted into films and TV shows and miniseries at this point. However, the range in quality tends to waver pretty greatly. Um, What are some of... I'm just genuinely genuinely curious, uh, as someone uh, asking another Stephen King fan, what do you think are some of the, like pitfalls and on the other side of things like some of the greatest achievements that the Stephen King films have achieved but like what are some we'll start with like what are some of the pitfalls and some of the reasons why some of these adaptations fall flat I think part of the issue is when it comes to King a lot of times the there's like a great buildup and a great like beginning and middle. It's just that the end is always just a tad off or it's kind of wrapped up a little quickly. Mm-hmm. I've always said that like when, when King makes a good ending, it's a fantastic ending, but for every good Stephen King ending, there's like four bad ones. Yeah. And uh, oddly enough, I think that his son, Joe Hill is better at writing endings than his dad is. Fair um, enough. Learn from his father's mistakes. Yeah, and so doing less coke. Yes, doing less, doing, doing far less coke. Um, <laughs> I assume. But, I don't know what Joe Hill does. No, no absolutely. Um, but I think part of that is um, when when you spend all like like let me talk about The Shining. Um, when you spend the first like quarter of the shining it's not about the scariest it's just building up jack torrance as a character Mm -hmm. and by building him up you feel so sorry for him because he's this you know he's a good guy he's of he just had he's just had a rough patch and Mm -hmm. um you know all he wants is to be a better better father to his son be a better husband to his wife and then in the midst of all of that, gets the job, and that's when things start to turn. Mm-hmm. And it's so much easier to read that 
and then see all the scary stuff happen and be just horrified because you know this person, you know the character, the developed character there. Whereas it's a lot harder to do that with a movie. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the things that King always had a critique about with the Kubrick Shining film is how it seems like Jack is crazy from date from the moment he's introduced. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And you know, I get it. That that's a fair point. And turning sh turning uh, Wendy into a shrieking head, um, <clears throat> Stanley. If you're watch, if you're listening to this in hell, how <laughs> dare you? How dare you treat Shelley Duvall that way? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> she had it bad, bad, real bad. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, it's a great performance, but Jesus. But yeah, what cost? <laughs> when what she's cost? actually like fearing for her life <laughs> and getting gray hairs from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that's why, so what it really boils down to is, um, it's hard to, like, capture a Stephen King story in a 90-minute to two-hour film. Yeah. Um, and they're, they, they've tried. Boy, oh boy, have they tried to. They sure have tried, yeah. <clears throat> Dark Tower! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about that movie. Yeah, that, everyone has. <laughs> yeah. Is that well that movie was being promoted out the fucking ass when it came out, but boy howdy did it disappear in a hurry afterwards. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well that was Matthew McConaughey and Adris Alva, right? Yep, yeah. Yep. And they completely rewrote how the man they re rewrote the man in black. Uh they messed up a whole bunch of the continuity and stuff. It just made no sense. It, it was really I mean I, I haven't read all the Dark books, I've just read the first one. Mm -hmm. But even that, like, any, like, diehard Dark Tower fan will tell you about how, like, vast the story gets and how they basically try to tell that entire story in, like, a less than two-hour movie. Oh, so it's like David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> yeah! Um, don't get me started on Dune. I could go for two hours on Dune. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting that, like, why was Dark Tower chosen in that format when they, like, like, they they still do Stephen King's stuff as miniseries. Like, I mean, they did The Stand again, but, like, I feel like he's had other miniseries come out in recent memory. Why was the Dark Tower chosen to be done like that? I think part of it had to do with... Uh... Like from the from like when it became a bestseller, there had been like a uh, a script of it in development hell in Hollywood. Cause, oh, because sure. I know like because the two of the producers on that one, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, they had been trying to make it for years. Mm -hmm. And um, like I'm Amer sure wait, like Ron Howard, Ron Howard, Ron Howard, Ron Howard. Okay, he was. I think I, I believe he was. He was actually an executive producer on it. Okay. Um, which, I mean, if you know anything, you know that Ron Howard's filmography is not not the greatest, but... Highs and lows. Swings. Highs and lows. He swings and he misses. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wasn't he um, attached to do Solo at one part? At one point? He, he took over for Solo once uh, they kicked out Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he did. So, like, you you can tell there are, like, three, there are, like, scenes in Solo where it's like, that. oh, yeah, that was shot by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And that yeah. Stuff that's way more bright and, like, not that, 
not that weirdly set up. Like, oh yeah, there's there's the old classic Ron Howard. Oh, I forgot he did like the, the Tom Hanks Da Vinci Code conspiracy movies. <laughs> I could also give you a, a long ass um, go off about how those movies helped inspire QAnon. But that's another story. <laughs> oh shit! We're gonna have to have you back on the podcast sometime. <laughs> oh, I'd love, to, I'd love to do that. <laughs> that sounds, oh, it's that sounds like a great discussion. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, going back to it, um, it's just really hard to um, make moviegoers care about characters that don't have that backup character development. Sure. And that character development usually takes. Uh, quite a few, quite a few, like a few episodes of a miniseries to build up. Hence, why you have stuff like, um, like what Mike Flanagan did with Doctor Sleep, mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah, and yeah, making a big change to um, the book in order to make it kind of a nice bow to the Kubrick shining. Mm-hmm. Um. And I mean, of course, you know he's doing fall. He's doing fall of the house of Usher. Is he really? Um, yep. That'll be cool. Uh, yes, sir. That is, um, that's a good ass Vincent Price movie. Yeah. Um, and of course, I mean, he also he's done King. He's done he, Gerald's Game. Yep. Um, that that one was fantastic. Uh, So it, yeah. like, it always reads to me that the biggest hindrance is when they, they do these adaptations, it seems like the more faithful they are to the more either cerebral or like trans-dimensional ideas that King has, the weirder it becomes. And do you, But do you think that's an issue with King's writing or just the fact that some things don't need to be adapted to film? It's a bit of both. Because, um, mm-hmm. um, slightly off topic, but this I have a point here. Um, okay. When, when Brian De Palma was interviewed about uh, some of his stuff, especially stuff like Body Double... Um, when you write something on page on on paper, you're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. But then when you actually like visualize it and make it on put on screen, people are like, holy cow, what the hell is this? Right. That is very much King. That is very much Stephen King. That and makes like, when sense. You, when you read something like it, you're like halfway through the book, which is bigger than the Bible. Yeah. And that's when you get into the stuff about. Uh, Pennywise being this creature that crash landed on Earth a million years ago, and there's that giant turtle that helps the boys, and um, all that crazy stuff, all that crazy cocaine stuff. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so of course, then you're like, okay, yeah, I can buy that. But if you're doing that in like a 90 minute movie, people are gonna be like, what? Right. That's yeah. So. No, that's very fair. So, but on the opposite side of things, then, what are some of the triumphs? Like, what what makes it, 
Like, I mean, Stephen King is obviously world-renowned, best-selling author, and has had so many of his works adapted into visual media. What is it about his writing? What are the strengths of his writing that keeps people interested and keeps them coming back to his works so many years later? Well, um, probably uh, kind of what I said a little bit earlier, it's the character development. Um, even with, like, if you read The Stand, how... Um, he'll build up these characters who uh, get killed off pretty pretty quickly, but you, he builds them up to, so much to a point where you're like, oh, you really feel bad about them. You get really scared because mm -hmm. these people, it's kind of like you're, you're watching somebody you personally know get really brutally dies of Captain Trips or um, anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, I would also say uh, it his cautionary tales uh, definitely uh, hit home pretty hard, especially like Pet Cemetery. Oh, um, yeah. Some of his stories, too, are so timeless, like Carrie and Pet Cemetery. I feel like they resonate throughout the years, too. Yes, absolutely, with, with Carrie. Um, and then also, I mean, like, most of his, uh, like, film, when it comes to his film work, his, his best like the best adaptations of his books are the ones that are not horror story. Sure. Shawshank Redemption, the green mile mm -hmm. uh, stand by me. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Even, um, Oh God, what was that other one? He... I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, but yeah. Um, when it, when it comes to just straightforward stories, you know, they're pretty. It's, it's it's pretty easy to read his stuff and be like, yeah, I can see how this works. But when it gets to the more darker, weirder stuff, uh, well, and it's a it's a you flip a coin with with it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a favorite Stephen King adaptation? <laughs> well, um, think about that. Um. Regarding King, I would probably say, I, I mean, I love The Shining. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I love, um, I, I've grown more, I've grown more accustomed to the 1989 Pet Cemetery, the one with, uh, um, Herman Munster. And yeah, his, uh, the one that we the... talked about on Time to Adapt, which yes, is still... Indeed. It's, it's still up on Spotify when me and Joel Lynn came on and talked about that on Time to Adapt. So if you guys, oh, wow. if you guys want to hear that, it's still somewhere on Spotify or on wherever you get podcasts. Damn, I, I forgot about that. Um, a while ago. Yeah. I would also say um, it may not have been the one I watching it, but it was definitely good and that one was uh the mist oh sure yeah people um, love that movie it is i mean i'm all about like bleak stories and, and like devastating arcs mm -hmm. but even that was like one where i'm like what the fuck and even stephen king was like yeah i like that ending better yeah no that i haven't seen the mist but that that ending is pretty iconic in its own right uh by this point for horror movie fans yeah definitely also um 
mostly because I've, I've been I've been on and off for Salem's for like two years. Mm-hmm. Salem's Lot, like the the Toby Hooper one is. Oh sure, yeah. And I know there's a there's, there was a note a new film version that was shot, and it's just kind of waiting to be released. I don't know what the hell's going to happen to it, but yeah, uh, I'm. I have hopes. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, I I forgot that they were doing a new Salem's Lot. There was that one like mini TV show, Chapel Light, which was like the a prequel to Salem's Lot with Adrian Brody. Oh yeah. I do remember I heard, hearing about that. I've heard nothing about it, so I'm assuming it's not good. Oh, that's why I heard about the new Salem's Lot. It's because James Wan is producing it. It must have popped oh. up in my... Somehow oh. popped up in my Instagram feed. Well, James Wan's a pretty... James Wan has a pretty good track record for the most part. Yeah, I mean, he's a good producer, at least. Yeah. He seems to attach himself to interesting projects. Were you a fan of Malignant? I fucking loved Malignant. <laughs> what a picture! What I thought that picture. movie was awesome. <laughs> I, saw, I, saw, I saw that with my now ex-girlfriend, so I wonder if that was the... I'm kidding, that wasn't the deal-breaker, but she <laughs> she hated it, which made me love it even more. I was like, that movie fucking ruled, dude. You know you've made great cinema when half the people love it. That's, oh, yeah. That's, that's just art. And oh, absolutely. That movie was wild. And it was like it it was so fun because I had I kind of anticipated what the twist was going to be about halfway through the movie, but I didn't expect it to get that insane with it. Like it yeah. was crazy. Absolutely. For those of you listening, if you've not seen Malignant, you absolutely should check it out. Shame on you. Watch it. It's yes. it's worth it. I for Stephen King adaptations, obviously, I'm a big fan of The Shining. Um, I I'm always been partial to Christine. I know it's not even one of his best stories, and it's not one of John Carpenter's best movies, but I still really like that movie. It's fun. It's, it's a uh, lot of fun. A great soundtrack too. Obviously, oh, the soundtrack is amazing in that one. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you and I are two are two Carpenter buddies, so. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever had the chance to see him? live no but i really want to because um as of late i've i've been picking up a lot of his uh, law games records oh yeah and they're just great music to put out in the background while you're while you're like screenwriting or something oh yeah no they're they're so good he um, i love that he's still doing this they keep talking about i need to talk about this in an episode at some point uh but they keep talking about how he's going to be coming back to make a movie still um and he's also producing a video game that's coming out too some sort that's of zombie cool. shooter because i know that's he's cool. a big gamer he plays a lot of video yeah. games yeah he loves dead space yeah he was like a big fan of dead space and um he also loves the knicks <laughs> Yeah, he does, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I heard something about how he went to Universal and uh, was pitching The Thing 2, uh, which intrigues me. Yeah, especially with that one having, like, <clears throat> one of my... I, I'd be kind of on the fence about that stuff, because on one hand, you know, it's his product, 
his mm-hmm. project. You can do whatever the hell he wants. And especially when you're when you're fucking John Carpenter, you know. Yeah, I'd, I'd give him carte blanche to do anything if I had the money. Yeah. But, you know, when you've made something 40 years ago that's become, like, a cornerstone in cinema, how are people going to react if you do something that changes it completely? Or kind of becomes, like, something where it's... It could go either two ways, you know? It could be, like, Blade Runner 2049. Right. Or it could be something like, uh, this is a terrible one to make, but uh, like To Kill a Mockingbird and Go Set a Watchman, Harper. Oh, sure. Like, so they like waited like, what, 50 years for it to publish it, and it completely changed his kind of character. Yeah. Stuff that had become part of the American, American culture. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's very interesting. It makes me wonder if he has had, like, a revelation or something, given he, like, worked so closely with this new Halloween trilogy that came out. Mm. Um, because, like, yeah, I mean, you want to talk about a polarizing entry. Halloween ends fucking polarized <laughs> people. Okay, what did you think? I really liked it. But I, I did. did I did need to see it a second time to like appreciate it because I talked about this a little bit uh, when I brought the show back back in October. But basically, what happened was I was so hung up on. I was more hung up on what the I assumed everyone's reaction was going to be as the movie was happening that I didn't actually really. Mm-hmm appreciate what i thought of it because when there's that sort of like midpoint uh just switch up i was kind of, i was like oh fuck we're going we're going mel gear solid 2 we're going Friday the 13th <laughs> part 5 okay and yeah. i was like i can't believe they're doing this i this is this might have been the wrong move pal but but i i don't i disagree with it being the finale to that trilogy i think that movie should have been reworked and then that maybe could have been like the second part of the trilogy but that's a different multiverse timeline that we didn't get as is i think it has a lot of really good ideas and some not so good ones but i ultimately really like it yeah yeah i liked how um i liked the idea of like like I was also a fan of Halloween Kills. I know that one was pretty split down the I like line. Halloween Kills just because it is just a ruthless, hard-R slasher movie. And, like, that's something where I felt like uh, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride were doing. It was, like, the first one was a full-on, like, it's a nod to the original. It, it does everything right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could stop after that one and... You it'd be fine like that that's it and then halloween kills was sort of like um an homage to the bad of halloween like the first one was an homage of the good of and then the bad oh yeah that's an interesting way of looking at it i i that's actually that's fascinating i've never i didn't i've never really thought about it like that that's an interesting way to look at it um, and then, of course, Halloween Halloween ends, which felt felt like the movie David Gordon Green wanted to make. Yeah, which appropriately and, was like 
was an homage to Halloween 3, as in it was the movie that no one expected that they were going to get. Which I think, I don't think it's, as a filmmaker, I think it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Granted, I do need to rewatch it, but I mean, I did recently rewatch Season of the Witch, and Mm -hmm. God, it's so good. I love that. That movie fucking rules. It's so good. It's so, it's so wild. I would follow Tom Atkins into hell. I, I love that, man. <laughs> I want to get that. There's that t-shirt. Um, I'll see if I can send a link to you. It's, uh, it says, it's just, it's like a bunch of texts, but the big text is Halloween 3. Nice. But above it, it says, if you think, and then Halloween 3 sucks, it's because Tom Atkins fucked your mom. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. I fucking love that. Um, Alright, before I let you go here, Mac, I was going to ask you this at the beginning of the show, but I forgot. Uh, Whenever I have uh, guests on, I just want to ask them the tried-and-true scream question, what's your favorite scary movie? Or give me a couple if you don't have just one. Ooh, ooh, okay. Well, put me on the spot here. I know. I didn't prepare you for this one. I apologize. Uh, no, no, it's cool. Um, well, I can tell you about some of the ones I've recently watched. Sure. Um, so, I I was at the movies a couple days ago. I saw Talk to Me. I really want to see that. It's good. Um, yeah. I don't think it's... It's not world-changing horror, but it's definitely... Um, much like I know a lot of people call it elevated days. Right. I call it like grief horror, where sure. like the horror is PTSD and grief and just psychological. Um, and that's very much what talked to me. Um, I think you would get a kick. Have you ever heard of Blood Muscle Builder? I'm sorry, you cut out there a little bit. What movie? Uh, Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell. No, I have not. That sounds wild. <laughs> oh my god, you, you sir would love it. It is the Japanese equivalent to Evil Dead. Okay. Um, it's like just about an hour long. Oh, you know um, what? This actually, this looks more familiar now. I think I've seen this somewhere. Yeah, that one's really fun. Um... I've been slowly making my way through the Friday the 13th series because I bought that big box set a couple of year or two ago. Oh, the Shout Factory release? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good um, fucking set. I've got that one too. So I got to, I watched The New Blood, which was actually the first one I ever saw of the Jason. Oh, cool. Um, I am not so a f- huge fan of that one. I know a lot of people really like that one. Yeah, it's it's... It is what it is. Um, sure. Clearly, like the the, the 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 two best ones are Jason Lives and Final Chapter, without a doubt. Yeah. Um. And I would say that <sighs> I'm trying to think of like one of the ones that really really mm-hmm. scared me when I was a kid. Um. Well, Japanese horror really scared me um, growing up. I particularly had a bad experience watching the American remake of The Grudge. Oh, sure. Um, involving a scene with, with a character with no jaw. That, that oh, fucked yeah. me up. 
Um, also, I saw the Japanese Grudge fairly recently, and that movie is pretty fucking creepy too. Oh, it's oh the atmosphere is fantastic. Yeah, which is one thing that a lot of those J horror films can do. Perfectly. Yeah, it's no, it's a nightmarish movie. Um, have you heard of Cure? Cure. Cure. C U R E. Oh yeah, I love Cure. Lullaby. Disintegration. No. Oh yeah, Disintegration is <laughs> one of my favorite records. Of yeah, that album rules. No, um, I cure. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Um, if there's one movie where I think like everyone should see it, it's uh, Kiyoshi, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure from 1997. Okay. It's it went under the radar when it came out, but it's essentially the like. The beginning of Japanese of like J horror, cool. And it's very much. It's not really depicted as a horror movie. It's more of a detective story. But sure, stuff happens, and when it gets going, oh man, the the when when once the burn cat creeps up on you, ooh, it's unnerving. Okay, cool. So, and I guess the other one is. Um, I guess I could talk about the uh, one that I had the. The most insane like film, the most insane like uh, audience participation, which I don't, I know you're not a fan of it, but when I saw Ari Aster's Hereditary in theaters, no, I like Hereditary. Um, it's a Midsummer I don't like. Oh, okay, right. Oh yeah, also, no, Hereditary. Yeah, when that moment happens, you could hear like a pin drop in the theater. It was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, and just the, like, the crawling on the... I had just moved into a new apartment when I had seen Hereditary. Mm-hmm. So there was a section of my of my uh, my bedroom that was just blank. And it was dark. And I kept thinking that if I looked over... I would Tony see Collette's Tony... going to be I there. See... Yeah, not just any monster. Just Tony Collette. Just Tony Collette, that's, that's yeah. Really, that's a little terrifying. Yeah. No, that movie, was, that movie was deeply unsettling. Uh, I I have an appreciation for that movie. It's not one that I'm in like a that I would consider a favorite, or I'm in a hurry to revisit. But there it is a good ass movie because Tony yeah. Collette carries that movie. She's phenomenal in it. Oh, yeah, she deserved an Oscar nomination. Yeah, well, the Oscars hate horror. What else is yep. new? What else? Is- well, Mac, this has been great fun. I think we'll call it there. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Absolutely. Bring me on again. I love doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You are welcome anytime. And once again, I will be dropping the link to Mac's channel uh, for Machiavelli's... I'm sorry, what's the full title again? Uh, Machiavelli's Midsummer Movie Madness. Okay, perfect. I'll be dropping the link for his channel in the description along with all the other usual nonsense that's going on down there. Thank you once again, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the Monsters at Midnight YouTube channel. Have thoughts on today's episode or suggestions for future ones? Shoot us an email at monsters.midnight at gmail.com, midnight spelled incorrectly. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash mattflamingo. I try to write about everything I watch, so if you want thoughts on non-horror movies, you can head over there. Until next time, my tender lumplings.